We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You crazy. You crazy. You're on tour like, like hard. Yeah. Chappelle asked me, he said, yo, when you stop touring, I said, when I die. Really? Can me, somebody asked me, when do comedians retire? Comedians don't retire. Are you going? <clears throat> they don't. They just die. <laughs> and I'm not saying that in a morbid way, but like, if you think about it, every time you hear of a comedian's death, the last thing you hear was like, he was just on stage last week, right? Because that's like our that's our our last outlet to maintain our sanity. That's our last outlet to get away from our significant others. Others. That's our last outlet when we when we enraged with something. Like that's just it. And what else are you gonna get of it on stage? We don't can, can, still in stand up comedy. It's like white folks fishing. Okay, I'll just get closer. It's like, it's just like white folks fishing. White folks don't really have to get up that early to fish, but it's like if I can get away from my wife at 5 o'clock in the morning, and that's what we're going to do. I think fish don't have a time they really sleep. You know, but what is my excuse? What, what, what sport can get me out of this damn house before the sun comes up? I and think, that's fishing. I think for a lot of performers, the confidence to go up on stage and crush it like that is really hard to find. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. It's hard to find the people that always want to crush it. You have, <clears throat> It's easy to find people that can go on stage just for a paycheck. Right. Or just like, okay, I have to do this. My, my contract says I have to do it. But for somebody to want to go up like each and every night and murder a room, yeah. that's a different breed. So how do you do that? I don't know. I think that's just something that's just in different people. I do it because I've been doing it over 24 years. I didn't want to say 25. It sounds so old. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like every every year, every year I want to be better. Yeah. You know, and again, like you have people that you get to a certain point. You got certain times in your career when you were really excited about being really good. Then you get to a point where you become really good and then you're excited about the money that you make. Yeah. And sometimes when you get excited about the money you make and you confuse with being really good, your comedy gets kind of stale. It's, it's kind of bland. But who, who are you to tell someone that they still make a lot of money, whether the show is good or bad? You know, with me, I just it's just something that's, I don't know, I just challenge myself. Like, I always want to do better. Every show, I'm talking about over 24 years, every show, every show I've gone on stage, I always 
try my best to just cut a room out. I mean, getting better. How is that accomplished as a comedian? I think as a comedian, getting better, you get older. I think your content, your point of view, things that you're talking about. I think it's um, I think it's kind of uh, kind of screwed up. Like as you if get wiser, you get wiser. You get different experiences. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think a comic that's uh, started in their 20s and then like late 40s talking about the exact same things. They talked about the beginning of their career. They haven't had any growth. Right. I think Muhammad Ali had that quote. He said, um, a person that thinks the same after 30 years, something like a person that speaks, looks at life the same way after 30 years has wasted 30 years of their life. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? And I think that can apply to great comics, not everybody. And then nowadays, you don't even have to be a great comic to be successful in this business. Well, that's a shame. It's un, it's un, it's a shame, but then... Do you want to call out any names? No, I don't want to call out any names. I don't know what to call... Who's call, not funny I, I and is making call, a career out of it? I don't want to call any names, people. Dane all Cook? of those followers on Instagram. <laughs> Dane Cook? No, no, not no I didn't say it. One thing I can say about... I, one thing I say about Dane Cook, Dane Cook had a point. Like you, I think you have like five or ten years in your career where you make probably the most money you're ever going to make in your career. Yeah. And Dane Cook was fortunate enough that he came through during the My, MySpace era, and he took complete advantage of his celebrity from that. And and, and not a defense or anything, because Dane Cook is still f- um, funny, but even him being a multimillionaire, probably got everything he ever wanted in life. You know, I, I live in L.A. and in New York, and I still see him out in the clubs working on his craft. And sometimes I'm saying to myself, damn, don't you got enough money? You know what I mean? Like, what you going to do? What are you going to tour with or whatever? But, you know, he's, he's made a name for himself. And then the thing about it is something – in comedy now, like with the age of social media and everybody wants people to have followers and stuff, like it's easier now to put yourself on than when I first started. When I first started, it was word of mouth. You had a, you had flyers. You knew you were, you thought you were gonna have a good show when you got that. Oh, I got five thousand flyers. So if you want to put yourself on now, what do you do? Well, if you want to put yourself on now, you still first off anything you got to have a skill set. You got to be good at something. But now, like these, now you got the younger guys that's coming up now. That's just getting a social media presence, and there's nothing wrong with that because that's with the networks and everything. They're going for those people now. You know, you got somebody that's equally talented, you know what I mean, that has 100,000 followers, and then you have another person that has 3 million followers, and then 100,000 dude may be funnier, but when you're looking at money and advertisers and who has a built-in audience and how we get them to see what our product is instantly, then they're going to go with the social media people. And like a lot of older guys, I consider myself a, a seasoned comic. I don't want to say older, but... It's a lot of frustration with, like, guys that I started with. They have beef with, like, some of the younger guys. But I'm like, you can't be upset with that because now they don't have to wait for a, a, a network showcase. They don't have to worry for, worry, wait for a diversity showcase. They can actually get in front of their laptop, get on their phone, and they can start building a fan base from that. A uh, perfect example, Jess Hilarious. I just worked with her. She's a, a YouTube sensation. But she went from, I remember years ago, maybe a couple years ago, she hit me on the um, DM and gave, asked me, like, what, what, do you, what advice do you give a new comic trying to get into the game? I was like, don't ask for advice. Your best <laughs> teacher is going to be the microphone and your experiences on stage. You know what I'm saying? And she and I've seen her. Just get up there. Just, you just have to do it. It's no, it's no way of, like, people, people. She can't get. She can't skip the steps by getting it from you, getting advice and wisdom from you. You she can't skip. go up there and fail and then succeed. Yeah, you have to. Like, you, you, anything, 
some of your best shows come from after you have your worst shows. You know what I'm saying? It's like no way to duck it. It's going to bite you sooner or later. Do you sometimes still like go out there and die or have a bad show? No. I have a bad situation. What does that mean? Um, might have misread my audience. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I'll give you an example. Um, this was uh, maybe three months ago, and I was like a little stressed out and not too feeling too good about some things. And I went to uh, this place in Harlem, Savannah's, I think it is. And they had a... Um, it was a rainy day, a, blur, a snowy day. And I went out and said, let me go get a cocktail and sing uh, 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall or something like that. And it just so happened they were having an open mic. And it was open mic. It was supposed to be like a jam session. But the only person in the band that showed up was the drummer. So I'm feeling like, I'm looking at him like struggling, like, yo, if anybody want to perform and help me out. And, you know, the artist in me was like, just let me go help this dude out. You know what I mean? No announcement. You see him on Chappelle's show, the wire, anything. I was like, I just walked on stage. And this one, I was uh, doing some controversial material that uh, Harvey Weinstein and his antics were part of it. And I went up there, and I just started. I didn't get the audience. What did you say about Harvey? No, um, I didn't say. Um, I think I said something about everybody's being accused. I said, I know it's only a matter of time before I get accused. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I Google every morning, like, new accuser. As long as my name don't show up, I'm like, I'm free for another week. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to get a sense of the audience, and then I didn't I, I didn't, I didn't, really pay attention to the audience. <clears throat> and I saw it was two females at this table. It was two females at this table. It was two more females at this table. And then after, once I went in and I made a bad decision on the stories I wanted to tell, I could just see that I was right in the middle of the Me Too movement. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, when you talk about hurting my feelings, bro, I mean, I mean, and it was like, it was nothing I could do because nobody was on my side. Right. It's one thing you could build people to defend you. Like, if they like, yeah, you got to shut up on it. But everybody was like, man, they hurt. They hit me with the worst thing you could ever tell a comedian. I think the thing that set um, the guy from Seinfeld off, um, what's his name? Yeah, Michael Richards. I think the really the phrase that set Michael Rich off, they said, you not funny. And when the chame- comedian hears you're not funny, it just feels like you're in just a time warp. It's slow motion. You're like, after 24 years, you're trying to say I'm not funny? And there was nothing I could do. They was like, boo, get him out of here. You're a has-been. But I did, on the way out, I did text. She, this girl said, you're a has-been. I was like, you're never will. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was ugly. It was ugly. And I, I don't, I think after you've been doing it for a while, you can have bad sets, but if you continue to have bad sets the same way, if you bomb the same way, you're not learning anything. Right. But then after you've been doing it for a while, you have so many experiences, and you have so it's, it's hardly ever going to be a situation that you can't deal with because you've seen it before. But you have like you have like you know a hundred stories and jokes in your mind, and you come out and you sort of read the audience and say, okay, this number six. 12 and 18 is going to crush with them because they're younger or older or black or you know, mixed you, or whatever. You, you, you know you can kind of cater to your audience. I, I'm one to believe, like, people ask me, Donnell, do you use the same material for a white audience to do a black audience? If you have type of material that only appeals to one audience, then you're cutting yourself off. Sure. You know what I'm saying? I really try to find it. It's something that I know that, like, you know, you, you'll, out, you'll have the, the basis of your set. But then if you're, like, like you say, if you're in an audience and it's all teenagers, you're going to probably try to you know, try to make them more comfortable and not do a joke maybe that you would do for like an 80 year old or something like that. It's all like, like doing stand up is like being a quarterback. You never know when you have to make an audible. You know, you could go out there on one, 
with, with one thought in mind, and then it doesn't go the way you want, and you got you got to be able to switch the gears. So you go out in let's say Tulsa, and you tell the first joke, and it doesn't hit, and so then you're thinking, okay. The bit about that was Hollywood-ish didn't work, or the Chappelle bit didn't work. Let me go over here to do something more. So I'll that, switch it up. Like, don't, uh, uh, like, what is the thought process if, the, like, my, the first joke doesn't work? Then what do you think? If the first jokes don't work, the first thing I'd say, that hardly ever happens for me, but the first joke doesn't work. The thing is, what you have to do is keep your composure because they don't know that that was the first joke that was supposed to work. If they don't laugh, they don't know it was They don't know. Line. They don't know. Like, you, it can go from, that could be... That could be like a, a heavy punchline, or when it doesn't work, it turns into a transition and a segue <laughs> into the next thing. Sure, that sure. one joke that used to be like, bam, you like, yeah. and the punchline might not work, but the tag might work. And the tag might work, but it's like it's like it's like comedy. Me, I compare it to like surfing and boxing. Surfing, you gotta know when to catch a wave, when to ride it, when to pull up. Everything. I'm a black guy that don't surf, but this is what I've heard. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but you just got in boxing, you gotta know what punch like. Some nights I'll have shows where I completely knock the crowd out. It's a TKO. And some nights it's like, I don't know who won. It got to go to the judge's scorecard. <laughs> you know, I'm at the end like Judge Smith scores at 112 to 111, 118. And you know, most brothers can't count the boxing numbers up that quick. So you wait for the ring announcer to say, and still, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did win. That was a close one. Yeah. But I think, like, as, as the more you do it, it's kind of you, you can in any given Sunday, any given night, you can have a bad set. But I think the more experience you get, you know how to deal with it more than anything. I feel like some comics have great material, and some comics are just funny people. And they, you know, like Bernie Mac, come out and say, "How you doing?" And you just start laughing. Yeah. Whereas other people have to have the jokes. To make. They have to have the jokes. And I feel like you're like a you're like a funny experience. Like as soon as you come out, you're like, "What's up, son?" I and I'm already a, laughing at your. I vibe. think it's a, with me. I think it's a combination. I think uh, it's a combination of the things that you just said. I think I know how to deliver a good joke. I think I know how to write a good joke. And then I just think it's a certain, as a comic, it's a certain energy. When you come on stage, and I and I mentor people and I help comics sometimes, I'm like, the number one uh, trait you can have being a good stand-up comic is being likable. Yeah. You know, one yeah. of my closest friends, her mom told me, I used to always be nervous when her mom showed up. Because I was like, it's one thing to tell jokes for your daughter, but to tell jokes for mom. And she used to be like, Donnie, Donnie, Donnie. She said, all you have to do is smile and you win the crowd over. You know, and I, I give that advice to any couples. If you sometimes, if you feel like you see a joke is not really working, try smiling and see how people will warm up to you even more. Then people love it when they can engage somebody that's feel good or give the impression that they feel good. Because with comedy, even when you're dealing with painful stuff on the inside, your, your exterior has to be one of having a good time. Mm. And if you're not having a good time, you have to be. You you could be angry as hell, but your jokes better be hitting. <laughs> well, so. How do you write a uh, how do you write a good joke? I don't really write jokes. I just recreate experiences that I have. You know what I'm saying? I just talk them out. Like um are you I, exaggerating or Oh you, yeah, exaggerate. Exaggerate. But you take a real life experience and you kind of spin it. And I, I take a real life experience, continue to talk about it, and for, with me it it finds punchlines. You know like I I'm, I think I'm more of a storyteller that has a quick-witted jab in there every once in a while. Okay. Um, like, I'm a, I'm a new dad. You're a new dad. I'm a new dad. How but, old? And not really new dad. I'm an older dude with a new baby. 
how there's old, nothing. How old? My son, yeah. he's two and a half years old. And before you even crack your jokes, I know all my friends' kids are a lot older than my son because when I planned my son's first birthday party, I called one of my buddies and I'm like, yo, you think your son can come to my son's first birthday party? And he was like, if he can get off work, dude. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's a real story that I talked about. That really happened. And the joke, yeah, that really happened. And the jokes really write themselves. You know, I'm already, I'm prepared right now. Being an older day, I'm prepared for the antics on the playground. I know the kids are going to come up to me like, hey, grandpa. And I'm be like, yo, I'm his father. Get the hell. But I'm going to be as savage as those kids. I'm going to be like, well, at least he knows his dad. <laughs> And, and, and we'll see how quick we'll see how quick that playground shuts up when I start hitting you with that single mom life. <laughs> when that no co-parenting life, you'll feel it then. You know? So, so, so something ha- is it that something happens in real life? I mean, is is the comedy mind always on the filter? Like, is that funny? Is that funny? It's Can always I- a true comic. In anything in life, he's thinking about the funny. The person that breathes it, lives it. You think about the funny. So when you go to Starbucks, you're looking for. I'm not looking for. I'm, I'm not looking for the joke, but I'm open for it. I'm open for a real life story. You know what I'm saying? Like even my 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 dad passed a couple months ago. I'm oh, sorry. To hear and a lot of times people find like you you don't go looking for humor in funerals or anything like that. But in funerals, there's some funny things there. Oh hell And yeah. my dad was a player, and I knew that we went to his viewing the day before, and I knew the day of the funeral it was gonna be out of control because all I kept hearing women saying was like, "Who is she?" <laughs> who is she? Who is that one? I was like, oh, you better get ready for tomorrow because it's going down. And I had no idea that side chicks go to funerals <laughs> and not only have a voice. And I realized after eight women went there to speak back to back and claiming years that they was dating my dad, I was like, you know, it was a dark situation. But how can you not see the humor in that situation? Man, my dad just passed like uh, a month ago too. Man, yeah. this, this shit'll knock you it's in the tough, head. It's tough, man. It's tough, and like it's. And, and I think with my dad passing, like I, you know, I've had my kid later in life, but with him passing, it really inspired me to want to be an even better dad. Because one of the things that you know I feel sorry about is like I don't, I don't have a ton of memories with my dad. Mm. My dad was a street dude. He was in and out of prison. He loved all his kids. He, it was, I'm not I'm not bad mouthing him or anything like that. But he chose. I tell people he chose a lifestyle that didn't give him the opportunity to spend as much time as he wanted with all of his kids. How many kids are there? Nine. What number are you? I'm number four. Okay. And and I'm I'm number. How f- many moms? I'm number four. Uh, <clears throat> seven. Wow. Yeah. And I it was when we were in the hospital. I was saying to myself. And this might be a little too harsh for some people. I was looking around in the, in, the, in, the, in the visit room with all his kids, and I was like, dang, my father had a lot of bitches, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized it took me 35 year, years to realize my mother was one of those. Because you, know? <laughs> you don't want to think of your mom as that. But when I look at those numbers, I'm like, well, everybody had the same eyes. But one thing I could say is that it <laughs> was important. Yeah, that was his trait. One thing I said, it was important for my dad for all of his kids to know each other. And we grew up, we didn't grow up, like, not knowing who our other siblings were. We grew up knowing who, who each other was, and we had a great relationship, even until his passing. So when you were, and you, even in the funeral mode, even in the funeral room, you are open to the funny. I'm open to the funny because that's what I am. You know, like, I spoke at the eulogy, and I, 
I know this kind of crazy. I damn near got a standing ovation. <laughs> and my father's friends were so gangster, so hustlers. One of them said, man, Donnell, I, I ain't trying to be disrespectful, but man, you had them goddamn jokes, bro. I started to charge $20 to get in there, right? What Did you tell like, one of the jokes you said about your dad? Not even tell. I just, I just told, shared experiences. Yeah. You know, I shared experience, and it's been, like, troubling to me because since they uh, announced uh, – the Toys R Us is going out of business, which is so traumatic for a dude over 40. Like It's like, how could that ever happen? And I told a story how my mom used to want to go to um, to take us to the Goodwill to get clothes. I mean, to get toys. Because, you know, she didn't have a lot of money, and my dad was so in and out. She couldn't go just blow money at Toys R Us, so she would take it to Goodwill. But when my dad was absent, when he came back, and you know when you absent out of your kid's life for a while, when you come back, you can't come back with just, I love you. For a kid, you got to come back with a Toys R Us visit. So, <laughs> right, and I right, talked right, about right. how I used to tell my mother, "Straighten your face up, Dad got a bankroll right now." You right. know, I just shared some experiences that I had with him, and it's just funny. It's something funny. Anything in life, there's always a, a, a humorous undertone. But who can go dig it out and find? We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick. Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. 
I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. I know, I mean, I felt a lot of pressure, a good pressure, going up to do the eulogy because, like, you know, there's only two of us, but, like, I'm the, the famous kid. They all know me. You right. know, we're professional talkers. Right. So, you know, we're professional writers. So you got to bring it. Like, but not only I got to bring it, like, it was so funny because one of his grandkids, like, he wasn't supposed to speak, right? So he sat beside me. He was like, I think I want to go up. I want to go. I want to say something. I was like, well, do they know that? Not saying you can't, like, if you're not on the list, you can't do it. I was like, just a signal of attention. So his name Donzel. So he went up because nobody, I know this sounds crazy. Nobody wanted to go behind me. Of course. They were like, of course. So he went in front of me. He was like, I ain't going behind you. I was like, that that makes sense. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, this dude went up there and destroyed. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was there ready to take some water, take a little, I was about to do some push-ups and get ready because he, he brought it. And he brought it because he did the same thing that I had planned on doing, tell some real. My dad, there's so much comedy about his life. That, you know, and I don't think that when I tell people, you know, my dad, when I'm on stage, I say my dad just passed away. Everybody's like, oh, I'm like, no, no reason to feel that like that. Because when somebody passes, then that's, it don't always have to be so somber. You know what I'm saying? And you're there to celebrate somebody's life. Well, when you've been around on earth for a long time, my father was 86. How old was your dad? My dad was 73. Yeah. So he, he had a lot of trips. He, he had, had a lot of trips. But then, you know, at the end of the day, bro, at the end of the day, I tell people the only thing we guarantee when we're born we have our born day, and then we have that dash in the middle, and then we have our expiration date. And at the end of the day, what is what did you do with your dash? When Charlie Murphy passed away, I was on a lot of radio interviews, and at the point people kept making he was so young. I was like, he was so he was young, but everybody's not going to live to a hundred. Right. Like, what's the sense of living to a hundred where you don't have no life experiences, no passports, never travel, don't do a lot of things? And 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 Charlie, he did his dash, and I encourage anybody. You never know when your time is going to come. So every day, you should be doing your dash and live life to the fullest. So just broader, how do you know something is funny? I don't For me, if, if I laugh out loud, I know it's funny. Right. And certain things are just, just so, so obvious. You know, just like repeating what you just saw. But if I laugh on the inside and I'm like, my mode, like if I'm, if I see a situation and I say, "Oh shit, that's funny," oh shit, that's funny. If I say that twice, it's gonna be a funny joke. But you never, you, you know, it's funny to you. And I think if it's funny to you, then your energy is gonna make it funny. So is it about your taste? Like you, like there's nothing more concrete that you could say. You know, like when 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 you see this, that you know it's gonna be funny. You know, I just, I think after doing it so while, I just have a of sense of what's going to be funny. I mean, I, so here's what I'm trying to get at. The average person listening to this who would like to be funnier at the office, funnier with the guys, he's not a comic, but he looks up to you as like, damn, that guy, What he just says hello and it's funny. Right. Like, how do I How do I get to just be a little funnier just But people like that, group? that's like, they, like if you, if you, if you, if you have an office job and you're seeking the performance level level for your office is not the right. It's no. a reason. It's a reason why you have that job and you're not on stage. You no, know? no, just but no, no doubt, be no yourself, doubt, no doubt. Like be like be your. It's the only thing you can do is be yourself. When I mentor people, 
And I always say, like, if you train to be a stand-up, always say you first start, you should have somebody you draw energy from. So I always ask people, like, who told you you were funny? And they're like, my mom always told me I was funny. Then that's the person you should talk to, and that's the person you should think about this in the audience when you're there, and that's the person should inspire you. It's almost like you're telling a joke to your mom. You know, like the when I first who first made you feel funny, made you feel funny. I remember one years ago before I started doing stand up. I remember we were up late at night, me and my mom, and she told me she said, "Boy, don't tell me another funny thing, another joke, unless you're gonna make some money doing it. Unless you're gonna make some money doing it. Because mm. she was basically she was telling me the level of just performing for your family or making me laugh, you've surpassed that. It's time to take it to a different different platform. How old were you? I think I was um like when I first started maybe 23. So you were 23 when you had that conversation with her? No, I was um probably like 21 cuz I didn't I didn't do it immediately after that. But it did make me wonder what if. But she kind of, yeah, she gave you the, the the real thought of like you could be a professional. Go. You could do it and like, you know, like there's one thing like I'm not saying anybody could be funny at a at a family reunion and stuff like that. <clears throat> but you got a built-in audience. If you're older, you got seniority over the younger people, so they got to laugh. <laughs> if you got the most money in the family, they're going to laugh because they don't want you to cut them off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> it's different stages of it, you know, different stages. But, you, know, I mean, it, it can be hard to make people who are close to you laugh. Sometimes it's easier to make strangers laugh in a way. Yeah, that's what it um, – but you still got that, that, that safety. You still have that safety net. You know what I mean? It's like family is one thing, but strangers – just looking at you like, what the hell are you talking about? There's no comeback. And you probably never see them again. With family, you can redeem yourself. If you bomb this Thanksgiving, you like, see you in 2019. <laughs> you know, that's, that's going to be my next show is see you Christmas. You know, you get another opportunity to, to win. But when you go up, it's not just a joke. you got to do a whole routine. It's got to make sense and, and as like a thematic thing. And it's got to have – there's a rhythm to comedy. And I can hear it, but I don't know how to describe it. I know that you guys are up there. Sort of they say in comedy, they're, they're, anybody, the number one thing, they say timing is everything. Yeah. You know, and timing comes from listening to your audience. And you have different different levels of listening. Like, if you're performing for, like, 30 people, then you're performing for 500 to 5,000. The jokes may be the same, but it's a different timing. Like, if you're, if you're doing a comedy club where... You know, it's that instant connection. Like, you're only connecting with, you got three rows in front of you, and everybody can make eye contact with you. Everybody can see if you got um, Cheetos in your beard or whatever. And then you got those venues where you're doing 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. You could tell a joke, but your timing has to slow down a little bit because that joke has to get resonate all the way, way in the back, if you're if you're a good comic. Some people go up there, and they especially doing big 10,000, 15,000, and ba 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 it's hard for people like once one joke they're digesting one one joke, you're off to the next. So you got to give it enough time to marinate. The bigger you know? the crowd, the slower you have to be. In some cases, not everybody use that that rhythm, but you cheat yourself out of a lot of good laughs if you don't know where to pull up. You got to give people a chance to laugh. You got to give people a chance to appreciate what you just said. If you're doing jokes rapid fire again, like I said. You get to the first joke, then you're on to your third joke, and they just get in the first. They just get in the first one, so you got to know when to pull up. So you're listening to them laugh, and you let them ha, ah, and right. But and it's not when it gets to zero. But no. like you, wouldn't when is it like for okay. me? For me, like for like it's like I have to sometimes, like I'm just 
I'm just a machine gun. Pop, 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 pop. Like, I'll give you an example. When I open for Chappelle, when I'm on the road with Chappelle, the most I get is 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops. So, and I'm used to doing 45 minutes to an hour and a half on stage. So, when I open for somebody, I don't open, open for too many people, but. but that's, like, your, that's the homie. Yeah, like when I open for Chappelle, it's like when I go up, you give me 15 minutes, I don't even really have to take a breath. I can just. I'm on all cylinders. I'm coming out. But then if I got doing 45 minutes to an hour, I might give you that heat for like 25 minutes. But at some point, you have to you, you slow gotta, it down a little bit. Yeah, you got to let them breathe. And you got to breathe too. And then especially in the comedy club, you got to let there's – a, there's a point where they collect the check money and stuff. It's a whole process to perform in front of comedy club. They got this spot called a check spot. The check spot is usually a time they drop the checks – where if you don't have the attention of everybody, you're definitely going to lose it because their attention is not on you anymore. It's like, oh, I, did, I, I drunk. How much? And then once, once, once you get to that point, you're not connected with them unless you rip into the check spot. If you're destroying, then people will be quick to want to pay. Like, okay, let me pay this and pay attention to the show. But if you're kind of going back and forth, and then you get to that point, I've seen so many people die after that spot. So when you know the check is about to be dropped, you got to have the punchlines and the heat at that moment to keep them from the distraction. Exactly. And in the case for me, when, I, when when the check's coming, if I'm not into like a, a, a bit that takes a while, I might do I might play around and do a little crowd work. What does or, that mean? Crowd work. Like, yo, you, I mean, it's so corny, but like, you know, or any couples here. Where I mean, that's some, you know, like. What do you uh, do? Where are you from? Yeah, yeah. That's so like, that's like. And you know when a comic is gassed out, any birthdays in the house, you know. <laughs> but if it's like I, you know, I might not want to do a joke that requires your undivided attention. You know, I might want to do like I might want to snap. I want to. I might want to roast a little bit just to get the room settled in, and then go back to the storytelling part. I mean, the comics who are who are really impressive to me quite often have great transitions. Yeah, and I don't even realize when we've flowed into a new joke or I thought that he was gassed or whatever. But that's the that's he, that's the really good like you have to, you, you get your jokes you get your jokes, but then once you get your jokes it's like how do you sew it all together, and that's the biggest issue that some comics have. How do you make that transition from with this joke to the next joke? And like you say to make it seem seamless and make it seem like he n- never switched gears. So how do you make a good transition? I try to think ahead. You know, like if I'm in one joke, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the next joke I'm going to do. Like most comics, when you're telling your joke, you're telling that joke, but then you're thinking about the next one and how you're going to get there. And you can tell people that don't, comics that don't think ahead because they'll tell a joke and it's like they get jammed up. And then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, what do you guys want to talk about? It's because you were only in that joke. When I'm telling a joke, I'm actually two jokes ahead. I'm like, okay, I need a word. I need a situation that makes the transition from this one to that one. And then while I'm in that one, I'm, in, I'm going two jokes ahead. I'm just trying to figure out how am I going to tie them all in. Wow. Wow. How do you practice? On stage. But on stage, and, and I practice... Not intentionally, but I can practice in regular conversation. Like when I first started doing comedy, when I couldn't get a lot of stages, I would call my friends at work, and I wouldn't <laughs> tell them. I wouldn't tell them I got this joke I want to try on you. I would just tell the story, and then this is when I knew that it, it, it was the stamp of approval. When I told the story, 
I didn't qualify it by saying this is a joke. And they'd be like, oh, man, that's funny. You should put that on stage. And I'm like, check. You know what I'm saying? Do like, you still do that? Yeah. I mean, in regular conversation, like when I first started, my conversation used to be so funny. Comedians used to be like, are you going to use that? Just a regular conversation. I'm like, yo, anything <laughs> that I say, I'm going to use it. You know, but my brain is triggered to be funny all the time. So it's I'm always, my ears, eyes and ears are always open for what the next joke is going to be. What can you do as a comic now that you couldn't do, you know, like 10 years ago? Like, can you mark your growth in that way? Like Jordan, you know, could do this when he was 30 that he couldn't do when he was 20. You know what I mean? Um, I think my, my, I don't know if this answers your question, but I think I have a stronger point of view on life. I think I have more life experiences. I don't think, I think there's things that you could do back in the day that you can't do now. I think it's like more what? of that certain words, certain topics. You know what I mean? I know this is tough to digest and it's not like, and I know this could be like people consider it. Like, um, I remember you could go on stage and just be like, it'd be a dude up front, like, look at this gay dude with them tight-ass jeans on, right? right and it'll right. be like, ah, he crazy. But the minute you open that can of worms now, like, you you got to be prepared for people going to come at you. So you can't say anti-PC I mean, it's like certain things that you just, you, you just can't say them the way you could. 25 years ago, you could go on stage and say, look at that faggot. And I know that's going to be tough for the listeners even to hear me say that. And your audience would go crazy. But if you said that word now, you can best believe that you, they're coming at you on Twitter, social media, they're protesting, they're going to go crazy. You know, like, it's a really, really, it's a really, really sensitive time for comedy. And I think that's unfair because comedy, comedians are the last of the truth tellers. You know, I remember when I was on MSNBC, there was a big debate about uh, rape jokes. And we had Susie Essman on the show. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, you know, rape jokes are never funny. And she was like, bullshit. Rape right. jokes can be hysterical. It's just the way that you do it. I tell, it's the way that you do it. Like, a question I ask on my show, comedians, there's a phrase, comedians, oh, oh, the new phrase, too soon. Somebody said, Donna, do you think a joke can be too soon? I said, you know, I think a joke can be too soon. But as a comic, I don't think it could be too soon for funny observation. Mm-hmm. The next thing I say is Vegas. When I say Vegas, people are like, oh, my God, you can't talk about the tragedy in Vegas. Mm-hmm. There was nothing funny about that. Right. I watched it the day before. I didn't think anything of it. I, was, I thought military SWAT team or somebody was going to come. They was going to get them. It was going to be over. Went to sleep. I woke up the next morning. Greatest tragedy in U.S. history. And I was watching the videos on, on on CNN, I'm watching the pictures on social media. I'm seeing people running for their lives. I'm seeing people scared shitless. And in that moment, I said to myself, white people really love beer. <laughs> because in every shot, there was always a white dude holding the beer. Holding the beer. <laughs> Shots ringing. Bop, 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 bop. Holy fuck. Not today. Don't These are IPAs. The they're jumping over bodies. They're like, whoa, this is 19% alcohol content. <laughs> Not today, locally brewed. And that's a perfect example. And that's one of the riskiest stories I tell because I have the audience, that, and I, and I do this joke right, in, right where I got the crowd going crazy. And then it slows down to like, oh, my God, Donnell, I'm a fan. You're about to lose me. And then that's a perfect example. There's nothing funny about the incident in Vegas but that observation is funny. Like, yeah. yells, like the white boys won't spill a drop of beer. <laughs> and it wasn't like it was a corner. It was fresh beers. 
They still had the brim on it. What's that thing called? The um, yeah, the yeah, hand the on it. They still, and there was like, 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 like human levers, man. They move left, right, and not a drop of beer spill. But it's only certain comics that can pull that out and find it. It's a great joke, and it doesn't, it doesn't take, it doesn't make fun of what happened in Vegas. No, but the stakes are heightened. Oh, like, but talking see, about there because if you're just talking about like I was at Coachella and, like, and they were that, that don't mean nothing. And for me, those are the most challenging jokes. For me, the joke that every time you do it, you have a weird feeling in your stomach. Like you don't know what's it. Not afraid, but you don't know how what how people are going to perceive it. I did that joke. I was working with Monique and um and uh. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low-sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it, and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member... I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus I'm in a period of emotional people I saw all the oh I don't care crap a little adventure where are you going I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia let's do it goes a long way <laughs> starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. In Dallas recently, and I did that joke, and that joke has been like right at the part when I hit that part, it's been killing. But this time, it was just like, I was like, I've never been in a situation where the second part of it didn't work. So I had to rush to the second part of the joke a lot quicker because they wasn't feeling me. They still wasn't feeling me. So I, this is another part of it I did. I was like, you got to get to this part quick or this your set is going to be. There were, I, I felt myself getting to a point where I would not be able to recover. I love too soon jokes, and usually I keep them to myself because they are too but soon. But see, that's the difference between you, and I'm telling you, I'm going to brand that. You keep, this is the thing about too soon jokes. Whenever you hear too soon jokes, people say, Oh man, that was too soon. But they laugh their ass off. They're, they are gonna—they laugh, but they feel ashamed to laugh. But it's—it's it's that moment when you really are interacting with the culture and interacting with the zeitgeist, and you understand this is funny. But most people are not ready to hear it yet. But I know you will be in a week. You know, like no, 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 no. <clears throat> I don't think it's too soon. I think it's too late. <laughs> by that point, no. By the, I'm telling you, by the time you like, you like, okay. Let me give it this little period, blah, 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 blah. Guess what? By the time you get comfortable where it's not too soon, everybody has done it. And the air is out and of And you got to, that's what challenges, you You got certain type of comics, man. You got ones that couldn't take the chance, deal with the consequences. So you talk about the truth teller. That's what you're getting at here. Like, yeah. like comics get a certain space in society, right? Like, 
You guys are different. You can say shit that nobody else would say. But people are starting to be critical, critical of it now. And it used to be that way. But now with every movement, movement out there, with anything that you have to say, anything you say, you have to apologize. You have to apologize. But black comics, right? And you know, you know the history as well as anybody of, right. of, of saying things that were important. You know, go back to Dick Gregory. Chappelle has done it. I mean, you know, even Cosby Pryor. You know, Moms Mabley, you know, who else has said, like, political truth-telling things? That is there room in modern society for black comics to still have that role? Of course. Or is it passed? It is, but everybody don't have the heart and the balls to do it. Everybody that you just mentioned aren't just average comics. Right. You're talking about legends, pioneers. Right. You're talking about the people that, for every Dick Gregory... There's a hundred people that didn't have the balls. They might have thought on the same level, but they weren't willing to risk everything. Like, one of the things, I think I'm a great comic. I think Dave Chappelle's a great comic. And I walk, watch Dave Chappelle night after night, and I see how he rips the room. And comedy, it's not no competition. And I was, and I said to myself, what makes Dave Chappelle different from me? You have to ask yourself these questions if you want to get better. And, I, and, I, and the conclusion I came to is that not everyone has, I call it a Muhammad Ali moment. And a Muhammad Ali moment is a moment in your career where you had to make a decision that could cost you a lot. It could cost you money. Mm -hmm. It could cost you a career. Mm -hmm. it, could cost you, it could cost you endorsements. It could cost you a lot of things. You know, Colin Kaepernick had a Muhammad Ali moment. Muhammad Ali, not going to Vietnam. Muhammad Ali moment. Dave Chappelle turning away $50 million, which I would have never did in a million years. I was like, we got to talk this out. <laughs> I'd be like this, yo, somebody talking shit, you're fired, you fired, and you're fired, you know? And like, certain, you know, but then again, Dave Chappelle could afford to make that stance because, you know, you know, you got to, even with every entertainer, like, people say, Donnell, when are you going to flip off? When are you going to go crazy? I'm like, I talked to my accountant the other day, right? He said, Donnell, you can't really afford to go crazy. <laughs> He said, you could, like, trip out for a couple of days, but all out just, like, I'm going leave. To you can't go to nah, South Africa. I can't Africa. go to South Africa. He was like, you could take a journey to the Bronx. You know what I'm saying? But you can't go, you can't go to South Come Africa. On, you, were, you were there. You were, the, you were standing elbow to elbow with Dave yeah. through those final days, those final weeks. Yeah. You were saying you wouldn't have made. I mean, first of all, we, you and I have had this discussion before, uh -huh. but for this show. What is the reason why this all happened? Why Chappelle's show exploded? But he, um, it, it ex the, I don't know why you mean imploded. Why, why did he? Yes, why did he leave? Nobody, to be quite honest, nobody knows. And I'm being straight with you. Nobody knows the answer to that. People have been trying to get that out of me for years, and even throughout the whole thing, I never asked Dave why. You know what I'm saying? And the thing about it, and that's just, I think that kind of contribute to the, to the mystery of Dave Chappelle. It's an unanswered situation. And then when it's unanswered, then you let people, people come up with their own theories. But what about his whole thing about the wrong person laughing? There, we That's what I've, I've never, I've never, I'm, I'm super honest, I never talked to him about that. And I could, um, you know, I can't really speak for him, but I could see how that could have upset some people. Yeah. But I know how it wouldn't have upset, upset me. <laughs> yeah. And I, yo, I'm telling you, I'm like this. It would have been easier for me, especially with that money. Like this. And, and I'm saying this because... It's easier. The person that felt that way, it's easy for me to say, "You're fired." But see, I wouldn't been. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been thinking long term. 
I'm like this. How do I secure my bag right now? I don't want to. <laughs> how do I secure that? But a long term, then it's deeper than that. Then it's deeper to like the material is just being written. What are people actually laughing at? I never felt that. In fact, when we were doing the sketches, always thought sometimes we was like, like walking a, walking on edge. But it would always be something that was a twist that buttoned it all up and made it made sense at the end. Um, what was your favorite sketch? Out of that period, my favorite sketch out of that period, and I was only 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 on that sketch for a second. It was the Wayne Brady sketch, <laughs> but because it, and the reason why because the dynamic you got blown of, away. It got blown. The reason why because the dynamic of it, and how this sketch even came about, um, they did. I think Paul Mooney did Negro Damas or something. Yeah, and then he said something like Wayne Brady looks um makes um, Brian Gumble look, look like Malcolm X, <laughs> and that happened. And, and before that, Wayne Brady was a huge fan of the show. And then it got back to day some kind of way that Wayne Brady was really offended by it. And I know after I got to know Wayne Brady and up to this point, and I know why Wayne Brady was offended by it because Wayne Brady came from nothing, like a lot of people, but they don't understand that because he has diction because he <laughs> speaks well. When a brother got diction, they the first thing they want to say, oh, he's trying to talk all. And Wayne Brady, grandmother raised him. He'd been through it. You know what I'm saying? He'd been through it. And I even tweeted something the other day. Name someone that has the tenure in television as Wayne Brady. I'll wait. I was like, this brother's been putting it down for years and staying out of the bullshit. This is a true example of what Hollywood should be. Right. You know, and he tweeted back. He was like, brother, that thank you so much. That really made my night. And that was just it. And it wasn't like, I wasn't trying to kiss his ass or anything. I was watching Who's Line Is It. <clears throat> anyway, I was like, this motherfucker, stay on TV. Stay out of trouble. And I just thought it was my duty to acknowledge that because you acknowledge so many people, the one your word son, all, you know, like the, would you think is gangster and everything, but he's gangster. And I can see how that offended him. He's like, dude, I'm no different from none of y'all. And Dave having a heart. He, he had, he was fucked up about it. Dave was upset that Wayne was upset. Yeah. You know, Dave is one of the coolest people you'll ever meet, man. Humble dude and cares about everybody, man. In some kind of way, you know, he might say fuck Faison. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, I said fuck Faison. <laughs> and I mean it. <laughs> don't edit that shit. <laughs> Please don't edit that. How are you going to say what was funny about the first season of Chappelle's show? The white, black, blind supremacy sketch was the sketch that set the world on fire True. to say what the hell is going on next week. True. What was so iconic about the first year, I don't know if you remember this, but part of the reparation sketch, I'm rich, bitch, <laughs> became a phrase that getting people to come to my shows for the last 14 years. What was funny about the first season? I just had to get that out of my system. Please, bring it. What the fuck? I just had to, I had to get out of my system. But um, Dave wanted... Uh, Wayne Brady to be in that sketch, and that sketch was so dope because I think the one thing that so it was it was Dave's idea. Yeah, hey, you mad? Let's do something together and figure this. Yeah, out. let's figure it out. Yeah, but the thing about it that I think Wayne Wayne Brady didn't have the street cred, and I'm not saying it's necessary that you have it, but you know, as a black entertainer, or whatever, you feel good knowing that you can make everybody laugh, from the people to politicians to that dude. In Brooklyn, Brownsville, to do with the do rag you want, you feel good. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm sure that and the reason why I like this sketch so much because it was dark. It was a dark sketch, spoof on training day. It was dark. You didn't know where the comedy's coming from. And then it took Wayne Brady out of a situation you normally used to seeing him in. 
And it really lets you know what his acting chops was really about. Because he was menacing. He was dark. He didn't feel like he was about to sing a country song or anything. He felt like he was about to shoot me. You know, in that one shot when he was like, um, when he came up to me and I was like, oh shit, it's Wayne Brady, son. <laughs> and that look on his face and that one sketch really kind of like, it gave uh, Wayne Brady that street cred. And, and people got to see. What Neil Brennan told me that the line everybody remembers. Um, is Wayne Brady going to have to choke a bitch? <laughs> but the funny thing about it. He didn't want to say it. He did. He, he gave us every option. Like, kid, I don't feel comfortable saying that. Uh, he, Wayne Brady talks just like my brother who went to Brown University of Georgetown Law and one of the coolest dudes. He said, uh, is Wayne Brady going to have to uh, uh, smack someone? And it was like, it was like, eh. <laughs> it's going to have to be like, is Wayne Brady going to have to smack a bitch? And it's so <laughs> funny when I was doing that show, that show was so dope for me because when the show was new, we didn't have no big time casting agent. I used to be, I used to call myself second casting agents because anytime they needed somebody extra, like, we need some homeboys in the background. I was like, I got some homeboys that could be in the background. We we need some bitches for the strip club. I like, I know some bitches for the strip club. <laughs> in fact, the girl who played that one line, she said that one line, she said, Hi, Dave. I like your new show. Her name was Pearl. She was a friend of mine. She used to come to my comedy shows. And she was in the adult entertainment, right? And the the actresses were so mad at her because, like, when they, for that scene, they had that scene, the scene for that, like, when they had the chicks walking a prostitute stroll. Right. All the real actresses, when the scene, they was like, cut. They was putting robes on to cover themselves. Not Pearl. <laughs> She's Pearl was like, stroll. I'm in my outfit. All the grips. Everybody was like, we like what Donnell cast. <laughs> And she went, and I know, especially in the Me Too stage that we're in right now, I know she she used that thong in her advantage, and she went from background to a to a, a, a U five, you know, under five. She had a speaking role. Yeah. And for a chick that was a exotic dancer to have a speaking role on Chappelle's show, she blew up in the strip club scene. <laughs> it was like she, yo, she used a great to call me. Meeting. She used to call me. She's like this. These bitches hating on me because I be on TV. <laughs> I'm like, that was one shot. So you 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 have now you have front row seat to Dave and his genius, what he's doing, what makes him so great as a stand up now. That his is it true is it's true voice. Like when you listen to Dave, like you can look like his pace. The last four he did four specials in a year. Incredible. <clears throat> the last the last one he did and the one that he was proudest of the most and he went like I went to listen to it when I once and like all night all he kept saying was, It's gonna go. It's gonna go, and I was like, "It's funny, it's funny, it's funny." But that's a dope feeling when you kind of, you 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 don't know, you know what I'm saying? You know this is your voice, but how will people take it? People are so sensitive, whatever. But when you hear him talk, it's not a dude that's trying to be funny. It's a person that's just funny, and their and their and their 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 observation of life is funny. And I told Dave, I said, Dave, you don't even have to be. People see you being funny so much. You don't have to be funny no more. I said people would pay just to hear you talk. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no just doubt. to hear you talk no because doubt. it's some depth to it. It's some, I it's mean, reality. But he leaves in these in these Netflix specials. He he weaves this into, you know, an hour long story with all kinds of weaving and where. I mean, the one with the 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 the, the Hollywood pitch. That becomes the Bill Cosby joke. He rapes, but he saves, but, but he, he still rapes. rapes. Yeah, I mean, it's, but it's like, a thirty-minute joke. It's a thirty-minute joke, and it's something that that'll stick with you, you know. And like I, and and this, Dave is a huge, huge fan of mine. 
we we were on the road. I remember we were we were doing a Tabernacle Theater in Atlanta, and he told me he said, "Donnell, if you get another standing ovation, you're fired." <laughs> so that was our inside joke. But we DC comics and DC comics, we're all about pushing each other. You know, and who wants to work with somebody that don't bring heat to them every night? You mm. know, what I mean? some people would, but it's not gonna make you better. And we both we both make each other better. Who? Well, wait a minute. How does he make you better? Beyond the pressure you're just talking about, how does he make you better? He makes me better with, like, like how – sometimes he makes me want to be smarter. You know what I'm saying? Like, like his comedy is real smart. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like – like even, like, sometimes, like, I'm, like, high energy. And sometimes, like, when I don't want, I don't want to emulate him, but I'm, like, sometimes just take a, a deep breath, you know, to pace out so people can really hear what you're saying, you know? And then he makes me want to be better because this dude turns over material so fast. You know what I'm saying? You're on a road with Dave, and the same thing working with me. If you're a person and you, 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 you're on a road with me, you can run the same material for two years. You're not going to feel comfortable. And while you're not going to feel comfortable, you're going to see the person. You're going to see me continue to write new stuff. And if that doesn't challenge you to want to step your game up, I don't know what will. When you talk about Dave's intelligence as a comedian, you know, and like, Larry Wilmore is also a smart comedian, and I feel like he went to Harvard. And I love Larry, you know. But Dave is smart, but it's still—it's life. Because Dave yeah. didn't go to college. I've asked him one time. I was like, "Damn, son!" And he can have a conversation any subject with anybody. Yeah. And you would think like he went to Harvard. You would think he went to Georgetown Law or something like that. But it's not that. That's just life. Who's your top five stand-ups all time? Um, I would consider myself number five. Okay. I would say uh, Richard Pryor, Bill Cosby. Pryor as one or four? Um, I would say Richard Pryor as one. Okay, okay. I would say uh, Bill Cosby at two. I would say uh, Dave Chappelle at three. Okay. And and George Carlin at four and me at five. Okay. I think... Those those will be, those are my top five. But I appreciate so many other so comments for different Rock, reasons. Does that mean Rock is at six? Huh? That, yeah, that, Rock could be six. So what makes Pryor so great? Because he was cutting edge. He was he came at a time. He came at a time like you know, Richard Pryor had so much of Bill Cosby in him when he first started. Right. You know, he was like, I guess he was like trying to be Bill Cosby, but his voice was so raw. It was so authentic. It was so, it was so gritty. It was so real life, you know. He what I'm saying to tell these great stories. And great story. Then he had one of those, and then it's something like his offstage antics and stuff just made him just an interested person. I mean, I remember listening to Live on the Sunset Strip and like just just the stories about being in the hospital and Jim Brown coming and we're gonna put the sponge on you. Yeah, you know what people don't people don't understand. Richard Pryor, they they say he was five months. Richard Pryor didn't Way really curse. The characters, the characters. That he talked about were profane. Mm. He wasn't. If you really listened to it, it was like mud boning those guys, those people cursed. But it wasn't like he was filled with profanity like that. His life was those are the people that he talked about. It's hard to talk about those people, paint the picture without being having their honest voice. There's definitely people who use cursing too much. Way too much. Can you can you do a funny hour without cursing? Yep. And I've challenged. My thing is like, like, I'll, I'll, I'll perform for my audience. You know what I'm saying? If I'm at a, at a church event, I know I can't go hard. If I'm at like, like some ghetto spot where that's what they want, it's what it is. 
that's what it is. But I can do. I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, I don't like my. I don't use profanity as punchlines. I use it because that's how I talk sometimes. That's a spice. It's a spice of it. But it's not the. If I, I if I know if I in my daily life, if I took profanity out of my daily life, that I could, I wouldn't curse. But like, let's like, 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 if you just said I'm rich, it's not as funny as I'm rich, biatch. Yeah, because you've heard it like that. But it's not. No, it's like yeah, it's got to be biatch. <laughs> that one needs it. <laughs> no, the funny thing about it, a lot of people don't know that almost did. <clears throat> we were shooting that sketch in Harlem. On like one sixteenth, and we didn't have a budget, so we couldn't do like big time Hollywood production where they blocked the whole street off. So I had to drive this truck. I didn't even have a license at the time. It was like, <laughs> you got a license? What I'm gonna say? No, and not being the city. I was like, ain't no police checking me, right? <laughs> so I had to drive the truck. I had to hit the mark, not run over the reporter, not run the light, take the keys out because couldn't have the engine running because it'd blow the sound. And I had to do all these, hit the mark, hit all these cues, and deliver the line. And I kept messing the line up. And Neil Brennan, it was close to the end of the day. He was like, yo, B, you're going to have to get this right or we just going to scratch it. And it was out of frustration. I was like, because I couldn't afford not to be in a sketch. And I was like, I'm rich, bitch. And it was like, that's the one. It was all out of frustration. I was like, what am I going to do? I was like, I cannot lose this opportunity. And that's what it was. This what? I could not lose the opportunity to be on a sketch because nobody was a cast member of the show. It was you only you were only as good as your last sketch. If you made people laugh in the last sketch and the writers had you in mind, the best thing to do, leave an impression on them. So when the writers write, Oh yeah, we can have Donnell. It was not it was never like you have to give Donnell this skit because he's a cast. It was like if you're funny, you come back. You keep fighting it every day. What drives you? Now what what drives me was being the best person I could be. But now with the son now, what drives me now is to try to create the best lifestyle I can for him. And give him the best opportunities and give him some opportunities that I didn't have when I was younger. And just being a super dad. I mean, I keep hearing about comics are depressed. Are you depressed? I'm not depressed. Are you sad? I, as, at, at times, we, we, we find a dark place. Sometimes you think that your career should be in places that it's not. You know what I'm saying? And you got to shake that off because you never know. People always say, they call me Donna, you're one of the most underrated comics. I was like, that depends on who's gauging me. And who's judging me? I was like, the only person can judge me is God, so how could I ever be underrated? Are most comics depressed? Yeah, it's a dark... Think about this job, man. It's almost like being a clown at a circus. Clowns, you think that they're excited every day. If you wipe the, <laughs> the face paint off of a clown, he probably is, you wouldn't even know he's a clown. It's right. like you got to force to laugh. And then for, for us, it's like people come to you for shows. A lot of times people are in a dark place. It's your job to, you know... You know, to perform for them, but there are a lot of comics that are that are dark. Take it too serious. I mean, I feel like I've known people who wanted pain because it was better for comedy, and just the reason why they went into comedy is because they were in pain from their normal life. Some people that some people that it's comedy is definitely as a performance, it's therapy for you. I've always like I still have fun doing it. It never feels like work to me. I've still have fun doing it. so. I don't know that dark side of it, and I really feel blessed. <clears throat> and I know this is more so when I'm walking down the street and I see guys working construction 16, 17-hour days, and I see all the work. And I'm not knocking it because I would have been that if I wouldn't have been doing this. I don't knock it out. I'm like, you know, it's something to be said. Like, I really have opportunity to make a good living doing something. I really like doing it. It's never – we when we were doing Chappelle's show, 
I was like, oh yeah, I got to get paid today. You know, like it just felt, it just felt good. And I really enjoyed it. And there's no better feeling for me when people come to my show, you have people that want to laugh. And then you have those people that need a laugh. And when I do shows and at the end of the show, someone comes to me and tell me, I lost my aunt maybe three weeks ago. I didn't know next time I was going to go out, but today I really needed to laugh. And I think that's what I'm here for to help people when they need to laugh. I mean, you put it that way, it's an incredibly important job. It is. I mean, society needs that. And we need society with a funny bone. Can you imagine if the world all of a sudden it was a, a pill or a mist or a spray or something that just nobody's ever, nobody laughs anymore? Your funny bone is God, comedian. You'll see me applying for different. I'm going to sell insurance now. <laughs> you know, so as much as they need us, we need them too because it's therapeutic for us. That's how we feel good. Um, were you funny as a kid? Yep. I was always funny. In fact, anybody that I grew up with, nobody is surprised what I do for a living. It's not like, you know, you, you hear some stories like, when did he get funny? Like, everybody, when I grew up, it was like, everybody's like, yo, you funny. You funny. I never thought it would be what I did for a living. But when I was growing up, everybody thought I was, I was always class clown. I was the funniest guy. Everybody knows a story in a neighborhood, but it's only one person you want to hear tell a story. The you know what I'm saying? Guy. It's like, yeah, yeah but you're going to mess it up. But, you know, it's like, I was like, Well, they say the difference is that the class clown makes the class laugh and the future comic makes the teacher laugh. So I you, made them both laugh. You made the teacher laugh, too? I mean, I went, even graduating high school, I think I was one, two credits for what, I don't know. I, didn't, I know I probably wasn't supposed to graduate then. <laughs> but my British literature teacher, she had my fate in her hand off this fine, one final exam. It came down to one final exam for me. <laughs> Right, so we were uh, in the auditorium practicing the walk and everything, and I went up to her. I pulled it. I said, "I said, did I pass it?" She said, "No, Donnell." She said, "But I passed you anyway," because she knew that that wasn't it wasn't who I was going to be. You know what I'm saying? Getting the A in British literature, it wasn't going to be my future. She knew the future was me being an entertainer. And being that funny guy. And I know she hoped that I went into that. And I know she looks at my career, the things I'm doing now, and said, I'm glad I passed that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I didn't need to see him for another year. I mean, part of it for you is the voice. I People mean, say that. The sound of your voice is just kind of funny. And I feel like you could have, you know, if you were a little different, you could have gone into, into rhyming with that voice because it's just an interesting sounding voice. If I could catch a flow. If you, if you, People if always just, say, you say if I, but I'm so horrible. Every time I'm with my friends and they start getting into their cypher, I choke up. I'm like, I can't do it. <laughs> Me and Dave Brammy, we went to a, a private party. Like when I say private with Jay-Z and Beyonce and like about 12 other people. Is this where Beyonce got bit? You was I there? don't know if she got bit. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you, you, you was there? I didn't go to you Bite there? Fest. You know what happened? I wasn't at Bite Fest. I wasn't at Bite Fest. This was after Bite Fest. But... And we were just there kicking it, and Jay had the mic, and I would sit over there, and people laughing, and he put, he, some beat was on. He put the mic in my face like I was about to spit. I was like, no, nah, I think I'm going to get me another drink, bro. <laughs> I am not messing but the, with that. But the sound of the voice does matter a lot, right? It yeah. helps you a lot. It does. And I have a, people say it's a distinct voice. Like, yeah. Sometimes I go to places, and I'm, I'm talking, people like, they think they recognize me. Then oh, it was yeah. like, and then when you start talking, like I knew exactly who and it was. It's a very black sound, African American. 
Yeah. It's the, yo, motherfucker. No, it's a very black sound. My name is a very black sounding name. Oh, I've yeah. never had an intro where when you say come to the stage, Donnell, you thought it was going to be a white dude from the Midwest. <laughs> you always knew it was going to be somebody that's like, is he going to have a fitted or a do I, 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 I envy you because. The way I talk throughout my life, people have been like, oh, you sound like a white boy. Right. You know, I get on the phone and maybe they think, oh, I thought you were this white guy. Like right. that. And, and, damn, and your voice, there's no question. There's no question. Like, I don't know how I should take the fuck with the fuck you just said. <laughs> <laughs> your voice has got way more Negro in it than me. Yeah, Kyle. no doubt. No doubt. Are we yeah. black? I yeah, you just did no doubt. It still didn't sound right. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Because <laughs> you can't say no doubt and exactly after it. <laughs> you can't. You can say no doubt, son. No doubt, but then I got son. that uh, at the end. So you're right. I gotta agree with that. Yeah. Donnell, the blackest voice in comedy. <laughs> hey, Donnell, you just know that's gonna be a brother. You just know it's gonna be a brother. Who was the when you were coming up in D.C.? Who was the comic who you looked at or gave you that advice that it said, ah, now I understand. Now I can move to the next level. Well, the comic that I looked, I looked at like I could go. T- I wanted. To really inspired me to really want to do it was Martin Lawrence. Because wow. Martin Lawrence, I remember I was in a bed with this chick in D.C. Right? <laughs> it's always a good start to it's the story. So, so I'm with this bitch in the bed. No, I'm joking. I'm with this girl in the bed, and HBO, this one the HBO specials were bigger than anything. And the dude, I didn't know who he was, and Martin Lawrence came out. He said, give it for Martin Lawrence. And Martin Lawrence said, give it up for a brother making money the right way. He said, when you're making money the right way, you can tell your lady shit like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and they'll shut up, too. He said, they'll be like, you so crazy. And when I heard that, I was up in the bed like, who is this dude? And his style was, it was so gritty. It was so hood. It was so funny. It was animated. It was likable. You know, Martin Lawrence could dog you out. And didn't make you feel good at the same time. You know, like when he roasts you, he didn't make you want to fight him. And then he was like, oh, man, just leave me alone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But he inspired me to want to have that, 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 like that, that edge, that like regular person just has enough balls to go up there and perform. When I first started, Tony Woods, um, Tony Woods is a DC legend. Tony Woods hasn't got a lot of like success, like television or film, but he was just one of those dudes that all the comics looked up to. Coming up, he was the first one. When I first made my transition from D.C. to New York, when, when I was in D.C., all I would do was black comedy clubs. And I wanted to do mainstream comedy rooms. And when I started doing them, I would always go up there and be like, yeah, I'm black and blah, blah, blah. And everything was black, black. And Tony told me, he said, yo, you do know when you go on stage, everybody know you're black. <laughs> I was like, yeah. He said, all you got to do is be funny. And he was a, well, that was like a light bulb when I don't have to, because I wasn't, when you're not used to it, and you just come from the chilling circuit, just black clubs. I guarantee you, you take any black comic in America, that all they do is black comedy clubs, and you put them in front of an all-white comedy room, that same comic that used to do an hour worth of material only has 15 minutes worth of material. Mm. Mm. You know, it's unfortunate, but you, what are you going to tell a person that's, you still got that base in the black community, you can still make money, like what's the need for me to do mainstream? But if you want that broad appeal and want everybody to appreciate your comedy, at some point... You have to be comfortable performing for anybody. And and partly, too, it sounds like you were kind of partly trying to prove yourself to the audience. And when you stopped proving yourself, trying to prove yourself and just do you, that's better. That's funnier. That's, yeah, that's, when, it started to, that's when it started to come together. And that's when I didn't 
sound like a hack comic. A hack comic, like black people, white people, the same, but they do stuff different. You know, white people just blah 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 blah. I mean, how many different ways are you going to do that? It's the same thing and just so easy. Yeah, no, it was years of comic view of everything. Is yeah. white people do this, black people do this, and um, yeah, so that was just that. That, that was just it. That's the, the, the and those people not working anymore. The joke you said that Martin said, Dave just did that, right? right? With uh, you know, Jay Z got shut up money, and Beyonce got. No, you shut the Who fuck up. Who did that joke? That only person I ever heard. Dave, somebody else did it. No, Dave got that. that, that, that and what uh, he said, Jay Z got shut the no, fuck up. No, he said, money, Dave, I, said I don't got that money. Got, no, said, you no, shut no, you shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, that's a dope joke. That's a dope joke. Funny <laughs> joke. What are your goals and dreams for the next five years? I don't have dreams. I'm too old for dreams. If I'm dreaming now, I'm fucked up. At my age, I still got dreams that I don't have realities. I'm I'm screwed up. My goal is to right now, and I you know, I don't want to overstate it, but my goal is just to be the dopest dad I could be, and give my son the best experiences. My I want him to be. One thing about me having a son, it's like I get to start over. Yeah, he looks way better than me. Way better than me. But you get to see the world through his eyes, right. and that rejuvenates you. And that's my like. I'm just my 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 focus now is to just to set him up for the rest of. So his wait, life. so wait, so being a great dad, beside providing, which you're already doing, and dads always think about that. When you're with him, you're not earning, you're not providing, right? You're you're being with him. So yes. what what is being a great dad to you outside of providing? Being a great dad, being a great dad is spending time and making memories. Spending time making memories. And I was like, this was, being a dad was new to me. And I was like, how do I do this? I don't have, there's no book. There's nothing to plan. I was like, I know, this is my thought. If I, if I try to be better than my dad and make my son better than me, I think that that's the, the math to being a good dad. Be better than your dad. That's so sad. That's it. From where I'm from? I mean, but there's, I mean, are there principles? Is there a sort of man you want him to be? I just want him to have character. I just want him to have character. I, I, I want him to understand that anything you have in life, you have to work work for it. I want him to be respectful to elders. You know what I'm saying? I want to, want him to know what are the things that you need to value in life. But it's something you said, that's it. But it's not, that's, that's a, from where I'm from, that's a great start. No, it seems so sad. It's so sad, but that is the reality. That's like some children of the lesser God shit. It's, like that. Like I'm just he. He remembers me twice. Like yeah, that, like, but uh, but but I know that it's sad and it's small. But again, where I'm from, that's the first step. Yeah, that's the first step. There's no way around it. You gotta. You. you I. I know from where I'm from. It's generations and generations and generations of the same person, of the same dad. As the same person that weren't wasn't in their kid's life, and I understand like you might have a different background to mine, but my background is being better than my father is a big step of being better. Me being better than my father is a big being a, is a big step for me being better for my son. Because number one, I got to be there for him. Being better than my dad, don't go to jail, don't do this seven year bid, don't miss high school graduation, don't miss. Don't miss these opportunities. So, again, going back, and I and I have to make that point. For some people, that's the norm. Some people, it's normal for them to have two-parent households. You know what I'm saying? We used to make fun. Go ahead, nigga. You got your mother and your father living in the same spot. You old fly. You know what I'm saying? But that's my background. And then that's my background. If I'm different from that, 
and I instill that into my son, then he, then when his definition of being better than his dad, it it, it grows. It's yes. a different thing. You yes. know what I'm saying? But it takes time. No, it does. It does. Um, does he find you funny? My dad? No, no. No, my son? Yeah. He thinks I'm funny. But he's the only person that's ever said to me, I'm funnier than you. <laughs> he knows. He knows. He knows I'm funny because he sees stuff on television, and I show him videos. And I bought him a karaoke. I'm not trying to push him into comedy, but he's going to be familiar with what I do. There's no way around sure. it. I bought him a karaoke mic with a little speaker, and whenever he grabs it, I just laugh for no reason because I wanted him to get a sense of comedic timing. Whenever he grabs the microphone, he knows that somebody's going to laugh, and he has to do something to make him laugh. So at two, he was just not really saying too much other than, gah, 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 ah. And then I would laugh, and then he like, he, 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 I'm funny. He knows I'm funny. And he, he, he's watched me at shows, and he, like, when he was just start, I brought him on stage at DC Improv, Thanksgiving weekend. First time I brought him on stage, he couldn't walk. I just carried him. Second time, um, and I carried him, and I put the mic to his mouth, and he just said, ah. And people started laughing. I was like, I got to get him out of here. I'm not going to be able to follow my son. <laughs> so the next year, he was able to walk. And I thought that um, he would be nervous. The first time he was ever on stage with me. So I'm on stage, and he's backstage. I was like, Austin, come out here. And then he walked out. And I thought he was going to get nervous. He looked at the audience, and everybody was clapping. You know, most kids probably would have ran away. He came directly toward me. I picked him up, grabbed the mic, and... He made a couple of sounds, and he got his laughs then, but he's definitely going to be comfortable around the stage and the microphone. Not going to encourage him to do it, but whatever he decides to do, whether it's doctor, lawyer, he's going to have to be the funniest doctor, the funniest lawyer, the funniest accountant, <laughs> the funniest whatever. And that's it. Um, last thing. Can, can you tell us a joke? Like a joke joke that you love? I don't have a joke. See, that's a tough question. That's, um, that's tough for me. To a joke? You don't do joke jokes. No, like a joke, like we call them hack jokes. I don't really have a... Because I know like Mooney will do like 45 minutes of his genius. And then the last 15 minutes will be joke jokes. I don't do joke jokes. I don't do a joke joke. You got me stuck. I don't do it. I, don't, I have that joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Aren't you glad I didn't say knock, knock? <laughs> See, that's how it is for jokes for me. It's like, I just can't. <laughs> that was the worst, that was the worst laugh ever. My dad, my dad told me one about this little white boy in the kitchen with his mom, and she's making a chocolate cake. And she, and he puts it, when she turns around, he puts the chocolate cake all in his face. And he says, she turns around, look, mommy, I'm black. And she beats him with the wooden spoon. And go show your father what you did. But his father's going to think it's funny. So he goes out to his dad, look, daddy, I'm black. And his dad takes off his belt and beats the shit out of the kid. He's like, now go on the porch and show your grandfather what you've done. Mm. And his grandfather takes one look at him, and he takes a switch, and he beats the last bit of piss and tears out of him. Mm. Now go back in the kitchen with your mama. And he goes back in the kitchen, and, he, and his mom says, did you learn your lesson? And he said, yeah, I learned my lesson. I've been black five minutes. I already hate all you white motherfuckers. <laughs> That's a funny, that's a stock joke, son. Everybody got them but me. I don't have one stock. Not a hack joke. That's called a stock joke. Right. right. I don't have. I used to have black man, white man, Chinese man. But then when I got my own jokes, I didn't want to tell nobody else's jokes. Right. 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 That's right. it. Now I'm gonna go home and write some jokes that I could do like boom on the spot. It's all good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. 
thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.